Hi there. I'm Will. And I'm Ted. And this is It Seemed Like a Good Idea. On this show, we take a look at uniquely Canadian feats, facts, and flubs that make this country the ingenious place that it is. We wrote a whole book about it, actually, called... Oddly enough... It Seemed Like a Good Idea. And on each show, we share some all-true stories around a different theme. And today's is cheating, Canadian style. Now, really, all our shows are about thinking outside the box. But there's outside the box, and then there's out of bounds. Right. Two different things. And a lot of folks wouldn't think of Canadians as having much to do with cheating. I mean, our reputation is on the mild side. Fair play, obeying rules, no showboating. Well, we're here to prove Canadians haven't been given their cheating due. And what makes Canadian cheating so unique is our cheaters' attitudes to the whole thing. Why they do or don't. So let me give you an example. What does the word departmental mean to you? Well, there's department stores. A high school would have a history or a math department. Ah, okay. Close, close indeed. So from the late 1800s up until 1949, departmental was the scariest word any Ontario high school student could hear. To graduate, you had to pass province-wide departmental exams. The exams were set by the Ministry of Education, not your teacher, and they could make or break your future. See, until well into the 1900s, you could leave school at 13, before high school, if your family needed you to work and help earn money, and many did. Just going to high school was a big deal. You even had to write entrance exams to get in. Graduating high school was huge. Getting your junior matriculation, or grade 12, pretty much guaranteed you a good solid job in those distant days. And to get your senior matric, as it was known, later grade 13, meant that you could be university-bound and the sky was the limit. Raising the stakes even higher, how you did on these exams was the only criteria for getting into university. Not marks for the year or a GPA or an admission essay. Departmentals were it. So everything rides on these tests. I guess they're what? True-false? Fill-in-the-blank? Multiple choice? (laughs) Don't you wish. Not exactly. Let's just say the departmentals had a reputation for being fearsomely hard. Now, you only needed a 50% average to pass, but there were a range of subjects, and you couldn't have less than 33% on any one. So because of that second part, if you got a 75 in history, that wasn't going to save you if you flamed out with a 32 in algebra. I have a very bad feeling I should have studied before this show. Well, maybe you don't have to. Getting a son or daughter through high school could set up a whole family for success. So naturally, there was popular interest in, shall we say, improving one's chances. Enter the Took Brothers. George and Charlie Took figured out a way to cash in. They may not have been geniuses, but they were smart enough to have solved one simple equation, and I'm going to give it to you. It may not be E equals MC squared, but it's just as profound. So try this. What's fear plus laziness equal? Oh, I know this one. A sucker. Exactly. Okay, so let's get into the details here. Now, Charlie Took was a school teacher, so he knew the setup of the departmentals. And in 1881, he wrote up a set of bogus exams. 
George got his mitts on a list of grade 12 students, and he mailed out letters offering them a once-in-a-lifetime chance to buy the departmentals in advance. The Tooks hit the jackpot. Desperate students were just itching to cheat. A river of cash flowed into the post office box they'd rented. A river of phony exams flowed out. The Tooks mm, took them. The students didn't find out they'd been cheated until they sat down to their first real exam, which was completely different. That sounds like a foolproof scheme. I mean, what can you do about it? Complaining would mean confessing that you tried to cheat. Plus, it's embarrassing to admit you've been fleeced. Who'd want to do that? Well, as the Tooks found out, the answer is almost everybody. We mentioned distinctly Canadian attitudes to cheating. Well, here's where one kicked in. Now, remember how much was on the line here, and remember that we Canadians are a thrifty crew. Far from being embarrassed, the furious fleecees flocked to the cops to complain that they'd been cheated. They wanted their money back. It was a provincial matter, so the investigation fell to Ontario's chief and really only cop at the time, a man named John Wilson Murray. Now, Murray had a fascinating career that led him to be compared with Sherlock Holmes. He probably would have passed his departmentals just fine. But in this case, not much brain work was needed. Murray simply staked out the post office box that was the return address for the exam buyers. When Charlie showed up to collect more money, Murray took him down. Literally, they ended up wrestling in a mud puddle. So the Tooks got tooken. Exactly. The brothers got six months apiece. Nobody knows what the students got on their exams. Now, we started with unexpected brashness on the part of Canadian cheaters. Maybe we should call that the thrifty Canadian cheater phenomenon? Well, it works for me. But we also mentioned that walk-on-the-mild-side aspect of Canadian character. Sometimes it leads us into cheating ourselves. So let's have a look at two different related examples from Canadian women in sports. One of the great Canadian athletes of the 20th century was Fanny Rosenfeld, better known as Bobby. She got the nickname when she got her hair bobbed or cut stylishly short in the 1920s. Bobby was born in Russia and immigrated to Barrie, Ontario with her family. Insert your Barrie joke here. She went to high school in Toronto, apparently passed her departmentals, then got a job as a stenographer at Patterson Chocolates. Along with the haircut, she got her brother's baggy sweatsuit and tried a few sports. She turned out to be good, like spectacularly good, at hockey, basketball, and tennis. Her favorite was full contact hockey, which existed for women then, but the sport for which she's most remembered was actually an afterthought for her, running. At one of her first track meets, she borrowed her dad's shoulders-to-knees swimsuit to run in. That was the fashion at the time. That way, she managed to avoid, as she put it, pop-tent bloomers, midi- and hip-length stockings girls were supposed to run in. They slowed you down a bit. Bobby won in her dad's swimsuit and went on winning. Patterson Chocolates was so impressed they created their own athletic club. Bobby was the only member. She set world records in the 100 and 220 yards in 1925 before switching back to hockey and basketball for the winter. Sports were really actually seasonal then, all of which helped her get ready for the 1928 Olympics and membership in... I, I know this. The Matchless Six. You got it. The Matchless Six were the women of the 1928 Olympic track and field team. They were also secretaries, students, and factory workers, true amateurs. As well as Rosenfeld, they were Ethel Catherwood, 
the Saskatoon Lily, a basketball, skating, hockey, and baseball whiz who also held the world high jump record at five foot two inches, and star runners Ethel Smith, Myrtle Cook, Jane Bell, and Jean Thompson. It was a great team. I can't believe they needed to cheat. And they didn't. We cheated them. Here's what happened. The Olympics were in Amsterdam that year, and there were only five women's events. The 100 and 800 meters, the 4 by 100 meter relay, the high jump, and discus. Catherwood won the high jump gold. Rosenfeld and Thompson came fourth and fifth in the 800. Cook anchored the 4 by 100 relay team of herself, Rosenfeld, Smith, and Bell to another gold medal. So with no Canadians in the discus, that left the marquee race, the 100 meters. Who would be the world's fastest woman? Rosenfeld had held the record back in 1925, but the Olympic final was going to be tough, not least because Cook and Smith, brilliant runners, were in it as well. They found their lanes. They took their marks. The starter called set, and an overeager Cook made a false start. The runners were called back, and Cook jumped the gun again. She was disqualified. That left Bobby and Ethel Smith. The starter's pistol cracked. This time, Bobby Rosenfeld streaked across the finish line in a dead heat with American runner Betty Robinson, Ethel Smith right behind. It meant a bronze medal for Smith, but who got the gold? Let me guess. Right. It went to Betty Robinson instead of Bobby Rosenfeld. Robinson's time was clocked in at 12.2 seconds, which equaled the world record. Rosenfeld's time was then necessarily noted as 12.3. They couldn't have two gold medalists with the same time. This was a hugely controversial call, but Canadian officials, being Canadian, refused to protest on Bobby's behalf. They said doing so would be unsportsmanlike, and they let the ruling stand. So Canadian politeness maybe cheated a Canadian out of an Olympic gold medal. I think you could put it that way. Canada still won the team championship, and the matchless six returned home to adulation, but maybe one gold medal short of what they deserved. Missing medal or not, in 1950, Bobby Rosenfeld was chosen as Canada's female athlete of the half century. Well, twist number one to that. Fast forward four years to the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles, and Montreal sprinter Hilda Strike was the odds-on favorite to win gold. Instead, she had to settle for silver in two heartbeat close races, the 100 and the 4x100 relay. But the last step in Hilda's race wasn't run until years later. Now, Hilda had lost the 100 to Stella Walsh. Walsh's real name was Stanislava Wolaszewicz. She lived in the U.S., but she actually ran for Poland. Well, in 1980, 69-year-old Stella Walsh was tragically murdered during a robbery and an autopsy revealed that Stanislava was actually Stan. Stella had been a man competing as a female Olympian. Asked if she felt cheated and if she deserved the gold medal after all this time, Hilda Strike, a genuinely modest and honest Canadian, said that she was content. By now this is getting complicated. Sometimes our sense of fair play means we cheat ourselves. Other times Canadians have to cheat just for a chance to compete. 
Sometimes good old Canadian thriftiness means we're not even embarrassed to be caught cheating. So, can you cheat a Canadian cheater? Let's find out by looking at one of our all-time greats, Canada Bill Jones. Canada Bill was a stunningly successful con man and card sharp. He was born in Yorkshire, England in the mid-1830s, apparently learned the basics of his trade from Romani there, he may have been one himself, and arrived in Canada sometime in the 1850s. He sharpened his skills traveling with another trickster named Dick Cady. Given his nickname and that Canada was his proving ground, we get to claim him as our own. And what he really mastered here was the art of three-card Monty. Okay, now tell me what that is. Three-card Monty looks like a childishly easy gambling game, but it's actually a multi-layered scam performed by a duo or even a team of con men. The game itself is simple. You've probably seen it. You take three playing cards, one of which is a queen, you turn them face down, and you rapidly shift them around. You bet on your ability to follow the queen. After the shifting, you pick the face down card you think is the queen, and it's turned over. If you're right, you win. If it's wrong, you lose. Now, with only three cards, you should have at least a fighting chance, but of course you don't. Because of cheating. Because of cheating. The con man shifting the cards is called the thrower. Canada Bill was a thrower. His dexterity rarely lay in lightning shifts of the cards. He could do that, but too much would give away the con. For it to work, the thrower had to appear unskilled and be able to divert your attention. So Bill's real talents were acting innocent and substitution. Most of the time you couldn't find the queen because it simply wasn't there. Light-fingered Bill had palmed it, swapped in one from up his sleeve or the deck, or hidden the queen with another card. You'd never notice him return it to the table in time for the turnover either. To get things rolling, a thrower needed at least one partner to lure the marks in. Bill and Dick Cady roamed pre-Confederation Canada. Cady would pretend to be a stranger, strike up a conversation with Bill, and eventually work around to a friendly game of three-card Monty for low stakes or just for fun. Bill, dressed up and acting like a country bumpkin, would deal seemingly ineptly and make sure Cady won a fair amount of the time. Everyone else in the tavern or train compartment or on the street corner would begin to watch and soon would start betting or playing themselves. Bill would let them win and let himself lose for a while, then pretend to get disgusted and start raising the stakes in what looked like a foolish, impatient attempt to get his money back. The marks would think Bill was losing his cool and happily match his big bets. Then he'd win every time. Somehow the queen would always morph into the ace of spades on the last big money turn. And there was big money in Canada? I thought we were thrifty. Good point. Eventually, like many outstanding Canadian talents, Bill headed for richer pickings in the States. He and a team of card sharps worked the riverboats till the Civil War, making the equivalent of millions of dollars in today's money. Later, Bill and another capper worked the railroads. So many people complained about getting cheated that the railroad detectives made throwers like Bill their prime targets. Bill's response was to write the superintendent of the Union Pacific Railroad offering to pay first $10,000, then $30,000 a year for exclusive rights to work their trains, declaring 
he would only play clergymen. The railroad turned him down. Okay. Apart from the quirky sense of humor, Bill sounds like a pretty standard, if successful, con man. So what is it about him and cheating that makes Canada Bill so potentially Canadian? Well, as in the Took case, it's a complicated and contradictory attitude to cheating. Interestingly, one of the tricks Bill's cappers used to coax big bets from the suckers with was to bend one corner of the queen, when Bill apparently wasn't looking, then quietly alert everyone to this sure sign of which card to follow. In other words, offer the suckers a chance to cheat, just like the Tooks did. Except when the bent card was turned, it was never the queen, just like the Took exams were all wrong. Remember, with the Took brothers, Canadian cheaters were unashamedly furious about being ripped off. But Bill was so good at his fumbling innocent act that his marks just got more confused. Really, though, it's Bill's attitude that is the key here. Canada Bill Jones died flat broke, and I'll give you one guess why. He got cheated? Bingo. The total con man was also a total sucker. He lost his money to other card sharps and crooked games as fast as he could earn it. Like his own victims, Bill couldn't resist a chance to gamble. And this is the part I love, even when he knew he was being cheated. When one of his crew found him getting cleaned out in a blatantly fixed poker game, Bill uttered the immortal line, I know it's crooked, but it's the only game in town. He just couldn't help himself. Eventually, though, Bill and one of his cappers parted ways because they couldn't trust each other not to, uh... Cheat? So, different attitudes to business and pleasure, huh? Or maybe... Despite it all, he really did have a streak of Canadian-style innocence and simplicity to him. That's what the head of the Pinkerton Detective Agency thought. He figured it was why Bill could play the innocent so well. But you never knew with Bill, as with so many Canadians. A last example of what I mean. I found two descriptions of Canada Bill. One said he was slight, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. The other said he was a six-footer with dark hair and dark eyes. Both said he was always clean-shaven. There was also a photo. It showed a sturdy-looking, apple-cheeked man with a dark chin beard and a mustache. Go figure, which was the real Canada Bill. He was so hard to grasp that at his funeral, someone offered a bet that Bill wasn't in his coffin. There were no takers. As one said, I've seen Bill get out of tighter holes than that. Finally, an example of cheating so brilliant and so Canadian, you just have to admire it. Louis Cyr was a world-famous Canadian strongman born near Montreal in 1863. By 1889, he was doing feats of strength in London, England, wearing a tight costume and sporting long Samson-style hair, which he'd get audience members to hold while he twirled them through the air. <laughs> Popular feats included lifting women in the palm of his hand, or 250 kilograms with one finger. There'd be a hook attached to the weight. Another favorite was loading a platform with portly audience members, and then Sear would get beneath it and lift the platform on his back just by straightening his knees. He once lifted 1,864 kilograms that way. On another occasion, and I love this, he balanced a ladder on his chin while his wife sat on top of the ladder. Oh my goodness. Now all of that was for real. Louis was a genuinely strong guy. His showstopper, though, was harnessing two horses to each arm and on a signal, having them pull in opposite directions while Sear held them in place. Now, this was actually a trick. 
though a very dangerous one. If the harnesses were adjusted properly on his outstretched arms and the horses started at exactly the same time, the force would pass through Louis's shoulders so that the horses actually pulled against each other. And if the timing wasn't exact, he would have become a two-man act. And really, how Canadian can you get in a country where regional tensions have often threatened to tear us apart, we need a balance of energies to keep us together. So, cheating or good old Canadian ingenuity? In true Canadian fashion, let's split the difference. Oh, and one last note, we have to confess, we've done a little cheating too. Careful listeners might have noticed that our music excerpts are from the Maple Leaf Rag. How Canadian can you get? Actually, not very. Maple Leaf Rag is by the American composer Scott Joplin, and the name referred to the Maple Leaf Club in Sedalia, Missouri. At least we're honest. You'll find some of the material from this podcast and a lot more in our book, It Seemed Like a Good Idea, published by Scholastic Canada, available in bookstores and libraries everywhere. Let's talk again soon. Seems like a good idea. <laughs>